Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency, whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious. I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and today we are doing a very different episode, which I am so excited about because there's something happening this week. Hopefully, touch wood, everyone, hold on to your hats. We have the ETH merge coming up. And to unpack this and what it all means and give you the insight that you're after, we have two guests on the show today. We have Pav Hundle. Welcome, Pav. So good to have have you here? Hello, hello. And we have Cam Crossley. Now, Cam, it is so wonderful to have you. The things that you've been talking about in this space, your insights, the way that you understand this are just next level. We are talking before we hit record. And I'm so excited to share that with our listeners. Now, you are an analyst over at Not Centralized, and we are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's always great to come and talk about the match. <laughs> yes, yes. And so much happening at the moment. Now, we are going to hand over to Pav. He is going to run this conversation. But before we do, Cam, the question we ask absolutely everyone, what was your very first crypto purchase? And do you still have it now? <laughs> yeah, good question. For me, it's not actually that embarrassing, which is nice. I feel like every purchase since has been embarrassing. But uh, it was a... It, <laughs> It was Ethereum um, way back in the day and still probably have some of it somewhere. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Ethereum. I love that. Very fitting. Very good for today's episode. I know. Well, Pav, we will hand the mic over to you and let's dive into all things Ethereum and the merge. That's it. Thanks, Alicia. <laughs> My first question, Cam, are you sick of hearing about the merge? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's been a long drawn out thing. It's uh, been, what, six, seven years that they've been talking about it? Yeah. Yeah. I know, like, even in our offices back in the day, like, SwiftX was up and coming. Like, we established in 2018, mm-hmm. and a lot of us only started working in late 2019, maybe 20, 2020, and the Beacon Chain launch was all the rage back in December 2020. I think yeah. everyone was like, this is it. It's happening. We at that stage were already seeing gas fees that we thought we were ridiculous. And since then, we've seen the Board Yacht 8 Club land auction where gas fees got up to, I think it was like five grand US. So, I mean, I guess it's about time, right? Yeah, you would hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess from your perspective, I guess, you know, being very much versed in the space, why would you say the change was slated in the first place? Yeah, I think you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. Obviously, back in the day, we had always seems to be NFTs, but it was like CryptoKitties that caused like the first giant spike because, of course, it would be cats. And then, yeah, like the most recent one was just every other. It would never be dogs, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's either cats or apes. That's all we got. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, obviously, with like the other side land sale as well, very inefficient contract, by the way. But still, I think it's pretty obvious through the last bull run that. Ethereum really needs to scale. There's a significant amount of demand for the block space that's there. And Mm -hmm. this shift to proof of stake in many different ways that I'm sure we'll touch on helps basically facilitate the rest of that to actually get started and provide a lot more scalability in the long run. But yeah, the merge itself doesn't provide any gas savings, just to clarify, because a lot of people get confused with that. But it lays the groundwork for big protocol upgrades that can happen pretty quickly afterwards. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing that we've been sort of spruiking on our fortnightly catch-up just leading up to this. I mean, it's hard not to talk about it because it is the talk of the town. It, it's basically that. Like, the gas fees are still going to be there. I mean, do you have a sort of direction for anyone that you know isn't as versed in the space on what really needs to happen for that bottleneck to be fixed? Like, is it more of that EVM, that middle sort of part of the contract process, or what's your take? Yeah, I think the 
primary move to proof of stake allows a lot of sharding. I suppose it was called sharding back in the day, but now it's not really sharding. But just supporting the layer two ecosystem seems to be the number one priority right now. So for those who don't know, layer twos like Arbitrum, Optimism, or Stock, I'm wearing a Starkware shirt at the moment. Um, <laughs> nice. um, so Starknet and like ZK Sync and all of those guys and Scroll, like they all exist on top, the chains that exist on top of Ethereum, and then inherit parts of Ethereum security. But they're able to process way more transactions than Ethereum can do, and then they'll post all of those transactions down to Ethereum periodically. So Basically, I think the main priority after we get past the merge, which should happen in a couple of weeks, is to support the layer two ecosystem, make those gas fees as cheap as humanly possible, and then have like all of the really high value transactions or things that, you know, you're happy to pay for the maximum amount of security to happen on like the base Ethereum chain. And then for stuff, if you're playing a game or doing whatever else that's on chain that you don't mind, you know, not having full Ethereum security for a few hours, you know, you can do that on layer two and still have good security guarantees. So when you, like that's a pretty important one that I, I don't think many people would have heard that sort of dichotomy of the security being different on like a layer two versus the layer one. Like, <laughs> What would you say is just more that multi-sig process like that and how itself has the risk in it with whatever you're signing with? Is that kind of what you're alluding to there? Yeah, yeah. It's a quite a big like surface area because each rollup is designed quite differently, but without getting too technical, basically the ZK rollups need to do a significant amount of maths to be able to prove the zero knowledge proofs that they're doing because it's very complex maths that they're doing. And so it requires large computers to be these solvers. And then you've also got sequences in both the optimistic and the ZK rollups that sort of order how the transactions come in. So as in which transaction gets processed first. And right now, those sequences, all of them are still centralized. So they're controlled by the rollup team. And so you're trusting that the rollup team is going to be processing them in a fair and neutral way, but it's not guaranteed like it is on the base chain. Okay. And I guess like one thing everyone sort of pointed to with this whole upgrade is, you know, going back to just a very beginner level conversation, just the, the savings and power costs and moving yeah. away from a proof of work concept, like even with those, I guess, layer two additional demands potentially like that you're sort of alluding to it is still power intensive it's still way less than proof of work still would that be right to say yes significantly less significantly less so in general i think most people know that proof of work mining is just essentially like a computer (laughs) that does a bunch of useless math problems and just like burns a bunch of energy until it you know magically solves it and everyone's competing against each other so it's very very wasteful in terms of energy consumption and that's a primary reason and one of the biggest advantages in my mind, at least, of moving through the merge is that you then, instead of having to waste all of that energy mining, you get a reduction in like 99.95% of energy consumption because it's just like running a regular laptop or a Raspberry Pi or anything to be a full node because you don't need to do that useless math problem anymore. And that's good because, you know, the world's boiling as it is. So (laughs) everything we can do to sort of stop doing that, that'd be great. The plants are loving it. Yeah, true. Carbon in the air. Yeah, true. (laughs) People in Europe, not so much at the moment, though. (laughs) Not not at all. But that's like an interesting thing that I've been thinking about ever since I was looking at this whole merge taking place in the months previous is where's that hash power going to go? Like, I know there's been a few projects that have started up trying to be the smart contract proof of work, because I guess there's two ideologies here. It's like everyone's accepting that. Yes, proof of stake is better for the end consumer, but you're detracting from the actual intrinsic volume within that ecosystem. It's a really weird conversation. Like I've 
personally try to stay away from it. But I mean, what's your hot take on, I guess there's two questions there, like where's that hash power going one? And then number two is potentially moving to proof of stake, removing some of that intrinsic value out of the proof of work ecosystem that Ethereum is moving away from? Yeah. So if you think about it, in a basic sense, right? Like miners get paid in ETH currently on yep. the proof of work chain. So ETH needs to have some sort of value. So people need to actually be doing something on ETH for it to be valuable. And if you're being yep. paid in ETH, then you're kind of relying on the Ethereum network itself being a valuable asset or utility or commodity, right? Mm. So there is talk right now that a lot of the hash power is going to just continue the current Ethereum chain. And the miners just going to continue to mine it. And so you'll have the proof of work fork just continue as it currently is. And then the proof of stake fork that happens after the merge will be like a, a separate chain, right? And so then yep. you'll get duplicate assets of everything. And we can sort of dive into that a little bit later. I don't want to get too confused in it right now. <laughs> um, but there's a million different things that that sort of brings up. Yep. But ultimately, like, even if all of the hash power stays with the proof of work chain, you still need people to want to buy and use that token for it to have any right. value whatsoever. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, and I guess that was... When you think about it sensibly, the Beacon Chain release in 2020, when people actually could move into that proof of stake environment while it was still in testing, I guess it almost builds a bit of security and trust within the, what we're seeing this merge now. Like there is, I haven't even checked the latest figures, but I imagine there's a heap of ETH just locked up. So, you know, you've got those validators ready to go from day one. Yeah. And you're not sort of worried about that consensus layer being too corrupted or not being able to support through not really at all i think like with the beacon chain it sort of launched in oh, what like december 2020 right so yeah, like right. the people who locked up their eat to secure the beacon chain like knew when they locked it up that it was going to be a significant amount of time and so in general, you've got people that are more than willing to just hold on to ETH at least for a couple of years <laughs> from that oh, yeah. or like 18 months. I can't remember what the original estimate was. But yeah, like it was a long-term vision for, yes, some staking yield that you get paid back from the protocol, but ultimately it attracted a significant amount of people. I think last I checked, it was like 400,000 odd validators and a lot of ETH, like you were saying. Yeah, wow. Why do you think it has taken so long? Why do you think there's been so many delays? Like, would you even label it as delays or was it just necessary that something like this would take the time it's taken? I think a lot of the research had to be scrapped after a little while. So obviously, when Ethereum first launched, I think they um, were anticipating this to happen within like between <laughs> nine months to a year or something like that. Uh, and so it's been a long, long time, but it became very apparent that the Ethereum community needed to research the security standards of proof of stake. and you know, having all of these other like alternative layer ones also implement proof of stake systems and sort of seeing how all of this stuff functions out in the wild has been really useful and has informed a lot of that research. And then tying it all back into like what the long-term Ethereum roadmap is going to be, what all the scalability benefits are going to be and what requirements there are, like all of it just got super complex. But I think the thing that probably pushed back the engineering the most was the fact that nobody needs to do anything, right? <laughs> so because the proof of work chain will continue functioning and then merge into the mm. proof of stake chain, like block for block, the end user, most DAP developers don't really need to do anything to worry about it. Mm. And so being able to do that with however many hundred billion dollar network with way, way, way more money on top of it being secured is like a very, very, very difficult problem while also developing like a incredibly 
decentralized software stack in the middle as well. So it's just very complex. It's had a lot of people working on it and trying to wrangle a lot of cats together <laughs> to get everyone yep. pulling in the same direction. And it's a tremendously impressive like engineering feat that the guys have all pulled off. So congrats to everyone who was working on it. Almost. <laughs> nah, and you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think another I guess differentiator from Ethereum versus some of the other L1s is some of the declines that it uses as part of that consensus piece of work. So that also complicates when you're changing over like this, everything's got to move over. Like it's not just one yeah. piece of work, you're potentially moving it's you know, three to four other things that need to sync over across at the same time. So yeah, again, just burning to that security piece, right? Yeah. So basically, like the reason why there are so many different clients in there is because if there is like a bug in one of the clients, you don't want that to take down the entire network, right? So Mm -hmm. just to give people an understanding, there are two types of clients. You've got an execution client and then also a consensus client. And there are four different types of execution clients and then five different consensus clients. And all of them need to work with each other. So there are a total of like 20 different pairings across 20 different software suites. And you've got to make sure that all of the bugs are ironed out in every single one of those cases and test all of that. So it's a monumental effort, really, but provides like a crazy amount of security because if somebody's compromised one of them, there's still 19 other like pairings that are able to keep the chain functioning. So, Absolutely. I mean, it was a bit interesting to hear say a little bit earlier that the average person you know, won't really be affected by this at all, David, which is great. That's what we want, right? Exactly. But, but I guess like, what would you say in particular are things that people might see post this merge? Like what are tangible differences or things that are now enabled because of this change? I think the most interesting one for like your average user, because let's be honest, most people are just like investing in the space, right? And then some people Mm. like use everything. But the biggest, I suppose, like meme around it all is like the issuance reduction of ETH. So right now we're issuing like 5.5 million ETH per year to miners, basically, just the protocol is just spewing it out. And that's, that's a static amount every year. That's that's just how it is. Pretty much, because it's like the same amount of blocks that you get within that time frame, plus or minus a little bit. And every one of those blocks needs to pay the miner who mines the block, right? And then that miner needs to go and pay their energy bills. They need to pay their staffing costs. They need to buy, you know, new hardware and, and maintain their existing hardware. So they're running like an actual business. And so... From like a retail investor or whoever is looking at it, right? Not financial advice. (laughs) But from that type of perspective, it's very easy to conceptualize and say, hey, this is like a business, even if it's debt financed and they sell stuff later, ultimately their revenue is coming from the protocol issuance, right? And they need to, at some point, cash that out and then pay their bills because otherwise they get shut down. So there has been a structural seller, essentially, with that amount of issuance in the market the entire time that Ethereum has existed. And so you see a similar thing in Bitcoin, right? Like they need to pay their miners as well. Mm -hmm. And then in Bitcoin, every like four-ish years, the issuance halves and halves and halves and halves. And so typically that has sort of been like the marker for a start of a new cycle. Whether that continues in the future, like who actually knows, right? But 
especially given the current macro climate and people not being able to heat their houses. It's like there are, there are other things to take into consideration. Right. But with the ETH issuance cut, it's a 90% cut on issuance on ETH. So right now it's 5.5 million. Yeah. It goes down to 600,000. So it's like a significant drop. And that equals the same as about three Bitcoin halvings. And so what impact that has on the market, like is anyone's guess, but it could be significant one way or the other. That's, um, yeah, you beat me to my next question. Like the, <laughs> the next meme everyone's kind of seeing pop up, I'm sure, on their Google News or Apple News feed is that this is going to be the equivalent of like a, a triple halving in, in the Bitcoin life cycle. So I guess you kind of explained that one there. Do you sort of foresee at all that difficulty at all, like the issuance rate changing at all? That all comes down to, I guess, the community voting, right? Because now it is it always has been and will continue to be a community-run project. Yeah, there's always like social consensus, right? So again, like, for example, if everyone decides that the proof-of-stake chain after the merge is like not the thing that we all want to support, then, you know, we can go and start using something else, <laughs> right? And there's always that like social consensus layer before you even touch the tech stack of everything. Right now, like, mm. obviously, the social consensus is that this is a significant change and is good for the entire protocol. And, you know, we see big players in the industry like USDC, USDT, and like Chainlink and a bunch of the exchanges and everybody is just they're supporting the proof of stake chain. So that seems to be the direction that it's going because that's where all the functionality is going to be. Yeah. So I guess the last big update that the Ethereum network did see leading up to this merge post beak in 2020 in December was the community proposal to introduce a bear mechanic to Ethereum. So long story short, there's going to be less of it and more of a structured approach to the gas fee, which still blew out anyway. <laughs> so yeah, can you sort of talk to that? I guess what will happen with that? Is that something that will continue or will that be reframed? Or Yeah, sure. So it's quite an interesting economic model in general, but the basic premise of it is every transaction that you perform on Ethereum, you pay gas fees, right? And priority fees. And a portion of that gas fee gets burnt after 1559. And the more expensive gases, essentially, like the more Ethereum is burnt. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, obviously, it's like very beneficial for people to just hold on to Ethereum, because again, your supply is like decreasing, right? And all of those gas fees aren't just being paid directly to the miner. But the burn is quite interesting. Like right now, because there's not that many people doing anything on chain, like the demand for block space right now is not super high. So gas fees are quite low. And so if you take the activity over the last 30 days, Ethereum's actually going to be very slightly inflationary with its supply. Right. But the interesting thing over a long period of time, I suppose, is if there's not as much activity, then it sort of promotes activity because the burn is less. And then the more activity that there is, it promotes like less activity, if that kind of makes sense, because you're burning more and reducing the supply even more. So it makes more sense rather than jumping on chain and trying to get a couple percent yield here and there because you're paying so much gas. You may as well hold on to ETH because the supply is going to be 3% less in 12 months time. Mm. So yeah, it's going to be very interesting to sort of see how that dynamic works, right? Because it's algorithmic, like everyone can sort of figure out what the current burn rate is and what the current like deflationary mechanics are. Yeah, that's really cool. I never really thought of it from that angle, to be honest. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like an inbuilt like central bank. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, right. Like it kind of governs itself. Oh, who would have thought? Yeah. So just to go back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier about the layer twos that are built upon the layer one, which is Ethereum. Do you almost kind of see maybe a potential theme coming up as the layer two race on top of Ethereum, like trying to go for the market cap 
within ETH in a sense. Like it's a bit crazy to think of a market within a market, but I mean, what's your sort of takeaway there? Because we've seen a Matic or Polygon, as it were, probably be the leader in that space. In terms of tech, do you kind of see better roll-ups solutions in the space currently that are maybe giving it a run for its money? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I spend a decent portion of my time looking at what's going on in the roll-up space because I think it's just really, really interesting. I think so like Matic itself is kind of a side chain, so it didn't really inherit as much of Ethereum security, but then they ended up significantly working on being like a full layer two solution. And they've done some amazing work, especially towards the end of last year. But, you know, there's Optimism who just launched their token not too long ago. And with like the token incentives, you see the same thing in DeFi where Mm. Obviously, there's the ability to incentivize people to use your chain more. And so they saw like a significant growth in total value locked on their chain and like wallets that are active on the chain as well. And so the interesting thing about it is, you know, Starkware, Starknet hasn't launched a token yet. Arbitrum um, don't really have their token launch yet. Scroll don't have their token launch yet. Like all these other layer twos. And all of them have got like very interesting, different architecture. And so... I'm very keen to see what plays out for what different use cases the best, right? And I think calling it a competition between themselves is one way of framing it, I suppose. But I think if we look at how much activity was happening on all of the alternative layer ones with whatever security assumptions they had, I think like Mm. the demand is there for a more, in my opinion anyway, and in my analysis. (laughs) That's that's all this is. more like secure space right and so with the layer twos you don't need to go and find like a bunch of validators you don't need to go and find a bunch of stakers or whatever right you start off inheriting ethereum security so you can just spend all of your time and all of your money building a better product and then just like roll it up and just post it back down to the Ethereum main chain. And it's way, way cheaper, which was the primary benefit of going to the alternative layer ones Mm. from just an on-chain user's perspective. You're like, I don't want to pay $5,000 to do this transaction, so I'm going to go somewhere else for a minute, right? And so I think it opens up this massive design space for different things that we can do. Obviously, like we're in Australia, right? So like Immutable's doing something really interesting with all the gaming. And, you know, reducing the friction into all of that. Polygon's got, like, a crazy amount of stuff. I don't know if you, like, claimed your, like, Reddit avatar. <laughs> no. If you're on Reddit at all. But, like... Uh, I am, but I haven't. I haven't. I need to check in on that. Yeah, yeah. You kind of just, like, scroll around if you've, like, made enough comments over the years. <laughs> oh, okay. That's yeah. probably not me. <laughs> I'm more of, a, more of a leech. Yeah. So, like, there's all these other types of things. And so you've got these social media interactions where you're like, do you really need, like, the security of the most secure financial network in the world? Or do you just want like a cool avatar that you can sort of trade around and do all sorts of other things that the majority of the economic activity in the world is like high volume, low transaction cost activity. So, you know, I think it just opens up the space for so many more participants to come in and still have a very, very good security guarantees. And they're getting better. Obviously, everyone's constantly building out here. So... Yeah. I mean, we've talked about the great things ETH has coming, what ETH has accomplished over time. It'd be interesting to hear your take on what you think the L1 landscape looks like right now. Like, obviously, you're a bit biased, I'm going to assume, to head towards (laughs) the big boy Ether. But, you know, looking at a lot of the competition in terms of like, you know, there's Solana, there's um, Aron Gold, you know, Avalanche, like they are sort of different enough 
more so than the code that they're built on is different from what Ethereum is built on. What do you kind of see as being the key theme, I guess, what separates Ethereum still from those projects? I think there's definitely a big difference in the landscape. And obviously, I am biased towards Ethereum. Like, that's sort of how I got introduced to the space. And, you know, I align my personal principles along with it quite a lot. But that said, like, I am all for as many different layer one projects and as much experimenting as humanly possible, because then you just get way more information about what works and what doesn't and where your failure cases are. And the amount of research that can be focused on different areas is quite significant. So, I mean, if you look at Solana, what they're building there is incredible, right? Like the different types of applications with the speed that's going on, they run into way different concerns, right? Because the issue on Solana is spam transactions and that ends up halting the chain. And it's like if you wanted to spam the Ethereum network with the same amount of transactions, it costs you like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Because gas goes up. Mm. Where And now Solana is sort of implementing some sort of fee market, I believe. But like the different types of applications, the different programming languages that people are using, like all of it is incredibly valuable information and incredibly valuable research that goes towards stuff in the future. Now, with that said, I suppose on the other side, pretty much every single one of those projects has been like privately funded by yeah. like a small handful of the same entities that we all know and love. A couple of VCs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, you know, I think from a like regulatory standpoint, it's impossible to do the same like ICO launches and stuff before. There are other fair launch strategies and whatever, but with the same level of commitment and community from the builder developer side and cryptographer and, and sort of just like thought leading side, a lot of that is pretty entrenched in Ethereum, right? Layer two is like we were chatting about before, like that's a really good example. Every single layer two right now is basically yeah. on Ethereum other than like Lightning Network and, and maybe one other one on Cardano. I think they've got one. And the reason for that is, you know, you want the highest level of security possible because you're making sacrifices on the next layer up, right? <laughs> but you can fall back. And so I think the whole layer one discussion should be about having the highest level of security at the base layer to fall back to. And if you want to make any adjustments or any considerations higher up in the stack, then you're like isolating what can fail, right? And not bring down, ideally, like the world economy, in my view, anyway, should be running on this thing. And that's like the goal of the core devs and whatever. So you want to make sure that you're doing everything humanly possible to have that base layer be as secure as humanly possible. And then have the time of your life further up, you know, like, mm. do what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, it definitely makes sense. I've personally, like as much as I've known about this, I've never really thought about it that way. And it's in the sense that, you know, Ethereum is almost like trying to create the Fort Knox of you know, a very stable network and you can go just ballistic on top of that, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we could talk about a lot of stuff all for a long time, but I'm very aware that your time is precious. I guess one final question I have, more of a speculation one, so you probably have to get imaginative. Like, <laughs> obviously, we've seen the evolution of the smart contracts. I think DeFi was a big turning point for a lot of people to see, holy, holy crap, like this can do something, yep. as broken as it was at the start. And now we're obviously seeing the shift to a proof-of-stake model to just, again, take that ecosystem to the next level. What would you say is the next big improvement from a technological perspective four years down the track, potentially? Yeah, definitely. I think four years down the track, we'll probably end up seeing like dank sharding at some point in there. Very simply, it just makes roll-up transactions like an order of magnitude cheaper. It's like a hundred odd times cheaper. So yeah, that again opens up like the sphere of the amount of things that can happen on layer twos and then layer threes and whatever else on top of that. 
I guess threes. Let's keep going. Yeah, exactly. Why not, right? Like, if you can continue up. So yeah, I think that probably is the biggest thing. I think from a tech standpoint, that makes the most sense to me. I'm also very interested in like zero knowledge cryptography in general, right? Because I think that opens up like a significant amount of possibilities, not just in the cost savings, but in like potentially private things. I think it's an area that's been underdeveloped and known about for a very long time and has finally found product market fit and solves like a significant amount of non-financial issues that we have in the world. So just to simplify in a sentence, when you say zero knowledge, what are you referring to there? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can use, basically, say I've got like a passport, right? And I just want to buy some alcohol from an online retailer. I shouldn't have to tell them all of my passport details because all they really need to know is if I'm over 18 and able to buy this alcohol from the website. And so they can query me and through like very sophisticated maths and cryptography in the middle, I can answer them with a yes or no. And they have a guarantee that the information that they need is accurate. Right. And so I think just that very simple like idea opens up this huge world. (laughs) Well, yeah, privacy is everyone's concern these days, right? Like you can't turn your phone on with it learning something new about you. So yeah, um, exactly. But you can get like really bespoke with it, right? So yeah. Oh, that's awesome, Ken. Maybe this has been insightful to hear your take on, you know, what the Ethereum merge has to bring to the eco landscape, what we have to look forward to. But I guess just some of the things to potentially look forward to in the future. But mate, so personally, want to thank you very much for, for joining us today. No, thank you so much, Fab. It's been a really, really fun time to chat. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 